right, well, Matthew chapter 10 is our text again today. Matthew 10. Matthew 10. In the passage before us, we have the account of how Jesus sent out His disciples. And He was sending them out into the world, much like you and I here today are gathered together on the Lord's Day. We're sweetly being ministered to by our gracious Savior. And then He's going to turn around and scatter us during the week. He's going to send you out to the places that He's called you to. He's going to call you to go out into the world and shine forth His image, manifest His name, do the work that He's called you to do. This passage has a lot to say for all of us. In the original context, the the twelve, the twelve disciples, are being sent into all of the towns of the Israelites. They're told that they should take no provisions for their journey, but they should just trust the Lord to provide through the people that He puts in those cities to receive their word, and that they are to move quickly, for before they're finished with the cities of Jerusalem, He will be glorified. But Matthew sees in that original immediate context to the twelve disciples, he sees in that a broader application for all of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so this passage, their mission becomes sort of paradigmatic for all of us, an example, an illustration. And in the second half of this text especially, what we'll look at today He really broadens the application for all disciples of Jesus Christ. And so today as we came to this text, I want us to come actually willing and ready to hear Jesus speak to us, to speak to us today about living as disciples in the world, going out into the world as His disciples. And our expectation, and we began to see this last week, Jesus warned the disciples, the twelve apostles, our expectation is that when we carry the message of the Savior into the world, and we live in the way that the Savior directs, and we hold to truths and values that the Savior puts forth, that we are going to run into opposition. Because as Jesus said, When the light shines, the darkness disappears and there's nowhere to hide. And people don't like when their evil is exposed. And that's what the gospel does everywhere. It's what it did for us, right? It's what it does wherever we go. It just sort of exposes by the way that we live and by what we say. What Our lives, as as followers of the, the Son of Light... Our lives, in turn, expose the darkness and so bring out hostility from the flesh. And we can expect no less in the world than what our own Savior experienced. So he says, you just need to be ready for this, men. And he says to all of us today, we need to be ready for that. Remember in verse 24, this is from last week, the disciple, Jesus said, is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his own household? So now having warned us about the opposition that we're going to face in the world, he gives us instruction and encouragement in the verses that are our text today. And that's beginning in verse number 26. Matthew 10, verse 26, hear the word of Christ. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear, rather, him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came, I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives... One of these little ones, uh, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The first and repeated thing that Jesus wants us to hear in this text, and you see it repeated in verse 26 and 28 and 31, are these little words. What are they? Do not fear. Do not fear. Jesus wants us to hear that this morning as we get, uh, as we are prepared to go out into the world, into a lost and broken and hostile world. He wants us to hear these words, do not fear, my daughter, my son, my child, do not fear, my little one, do not fear, do not fear what men can do. You know, the fear of man, the fear of men is one of the greatest temptations that we face, and one that manifests itself in so many different ways. There is the fear of the difficulties that people can bring into our lives. We fear how they can make our life more challenging, the financial pressures that they're able to bear, or the pressures on our careers or perhaps even the pressure and the affliction that they can bring upon one's liberty, or even possibly on life itself. There are Christians today who are facing those kinds of pressures and afflictions all around the world. But the fear of man often takes a more subtler um, approach and is probably much more common for us in that we do not fear the afflictions that men bring, but we fear somehow losing men's approval, their esteem, their respect, or their love. This is a preoccupation with what will they think of me more than what will God think of me, what is right before God. How many of us have not at some time looked back upon a decision that regrettably was driven primarily by what people thought of us or what we thought people might think of us? Good question to ask yourself is what is really driving me? What is really the motive for the the things that have that I've done, the choices that I've made, what has really shaped my choices? How has the fear of man shaped what I have done or not done this past week? The fear of man will tempt us to keep quiet. Won't it? You ever had that? The fear of man will tempt us to keep quiet. But Jesus says, nothing that is covered will not be revealed. 
or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What I whisper, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. In other words, God's plan is for truth to come out into the light. That's God's plan for, for truth to, to, un, to be uncovered, to be unveiled, to be broadcast. The gospel wasn't meant to be kept quiet. The gospel was not meant to be hushed up. It is true that in the very, very beginning, Jesus spoke in parables in order to actually conceal the truth, only speaking plainly to those people who would listen. It is true that during His earthly ministry, sometimes He charged people not to tell the amazing things that He had done for them. It is true that He did not go up to the feast in Jerusalem publicly for much of His ministry, but went privately, quietly. But all of this was due to His unique ministry and the unfolding purposes of God. But Jesus says now to His apostles, what I have whispered in your ear... You stand on the flat roof of your house and you proclaim to all of the people in the streets. What I've said to you is now supposed to be publicized. It's supposed to be broadcast. It's supposed to be shouted. He says to them, don't hide your light underneath the basket. You get it out and you set it up on the lampstand. That's what you do with light. He says, I've given you light and your job is to make it public. One of the greatest temptations with regard to the fear of man is to let our light be hidden, to keep our mouths shut, to not live publicly and openly in a way that identifies us with Christ and all that He proclaims as truth and all of the things that He values. A temptation to just sort of live in the shadows and kind of go along behind the scenes and not be too noticeable to other people, to not stand out as a Christian and not to proclaim God's Word. We ask ourselves what I could lose if I did such a thing. I could lose my reputation as a nice guy, as a nice, easygoing person, easy to get along with at work. You know, I don't... I don't make waves. I just, you know, people do what they're going to do and I just kind of go under the radar and I could lose my reputation as a person who's tolerant. A normal, easygoing person. I don't want to be thought of as that, that one who's causing trouble or standing out. I know that what others think of me has become too important for me when my fear of losing it makes me disobedient to Jesus Christ. He tells these men, do not fear men. You understand this, that the world is going in a different direction. Expect that. Don't fear what men can do. And now he reasons with them, and he reasons with us about the fear of man by way of encouraging us. He motivates us. He gives us these motivations not to fear men. Number one, we can, we ought to fear losing God's approval more than we fear losing men's approval. Jesus says, look at the text again, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The answer to fear, Jesus says, is to think, to evaluate things, right? We saw this a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 11. He said, you think about this. When you're tempted to fear, when you're tempted to be consumed by the fear of man and let that be the governing thing in your choices, you think not about what man can do, but what about what about what God can do. We might, we, 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 he says, do, should not ask ourselves, what do I have to, to, to lose from man? Or to ask it in light of the, the truth. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I shall not fear. What can, what? 
What can man do unto me? The Lord is on my side. All right? Take the Lord and put him over here and take as many men as you want in any degree of power and influence over your life that you want and you put them over here. And the psalmist looks at them and he, he, he's not being foolish. He's making a wise evaluation. And he says, I have men and I have the Lord. If I have the Lord, what possible things can men do to me? Jesus urges us to process the, the, the world around us and the, and the opposition that we're going to face in the world in exactly that kind of way. To think about it. To meditate on it. You take the very worst case scenario. Okay, what can men do to me? All right, well, they can, they can, they can punish me uh, uh, financially. They can put pressure on me socially. If you, if you go all the way to the very end, what men, okay, the worst they can do, they can kill me. They can take away my life. What about that? What if men did their worst? Can Christians really be put to death? Well, in a, in a way, yes, but in another way, absolutely not. Because Christian people have already died, and they're already alive again in Jesus Christ. So that for, for them, death is, well, it's not death anymore in the sense of being the robust enemy that death once was, that separates us from God. Death is for them no more death it's not just a, a beautiful poem. It is the truth that it is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who've dwelt on high and found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before His throne, delivered from all fears. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to dwell among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets you free from mortal years to praise Him forevermore. Death, even the worst that the world can do to a believing person, is nothing if God is for us. Why would we worry? If, if, if we don't have to worry about death, why would we worry about anything else? He says we ought not to fear what men can do. Men who can only kill the body. But rather we should fear what God can do. God is able to cast both soul and body into hell to be forever destroyed. This is the great um, truth about the righteous wrath of God, the justice of God that is rightly poured out upon sinners. And it is this from which Christ has delivered us by taking upon Himself the, sacrifice, the, the, the punishment, the wrath of God as a sacrifice for sin so that we might be delivered from the wrath of God and brought into everlasting communion with God. This is the glory of the gospel, but apart from Christ, there is only fearful judgment. The Bible says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Christians in this situation where they have great confidence before God, they come boldly into the throne room of God, they call God their Father, they have great joy in His presence, but at the same time, it's mingled with a sense of reverence and awe for who God is and a righteous, healthy fear that they would not fall into 
a fear that they might fall into such apathy about sin or such bitterness against God that they come to prove in the end that they were no true believers at all. This is why Hebrews 12 has such confidence about our approach to God, and yet it ends with, let us worship Him with reverence and awe because He's a consuming fire. True Christians are never presumptuous about grace. Well, I'm sinning, but there's grace. True Christians live in the fear of Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And those who live in the fear of God are the ones who find in the end that they have nothing to fear from God because of their Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, do not fear Do not fear those who can kill merely the body. You live in a righteous, healthy fear of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Though I speak this way, I am convinced of better things regarding most of you. Things that accompany salvation. And so Jesus moves from On the one hand, now you've got to be able to have a theology that can do this. To move from speaking to his disciples about fearing God who can throw body and soul into hell into talking about the love and the care of God for those disciples. He says this is another motivation not to fear man. It is the loving care of God. Look at verse 29. And and just think about how he puts these together. The fear of God. And the love of God, he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but not, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This is kind of like what he did back in chapter 6. You remember when he was talking to the disciples there, and he gave them the illustration. Look at the birds, he says. God takes care of the birds, so he does... In a way, the same thing here. He compares the disciples' value to the value of tiny little birds. Birds that are so plentiful that you could go to the marketplace and buy them two for a penny. They're so relatively insignificant that the smallest coin in the realm can, will buy you more than one. I mean, these are everywhere. These little sparrows, you walk down the street, you see them. All over, Jesus is pointing out the relative value of his disciples, all right, with that of many of these little birds. And I say, it's, he's pointing out, now listen to this, he's pointing out the relative value. In other words, the point is not that God doesn't care about birds. In fact, he specifically says that God's care for birds is singular. Not one single Little bird, half a penny's worth, falls to the ground without your father. Not a hair of your head is unknown to him. God's care, even for the sparrows, even for the tiniest details, is singular. Think of all the ways that a bird might die. Well, that was kind of a fun exercise this week. Okay, you could get eaten by a cat, uh, hit by a car, uh, killed by disease. You know, you could probably think of a number of ways. Think of all the different ways that a bird can die. And now this. Imagine and understand that God controls every circumstance of life that might affect the life of this one single little bird. That God controls the cat, the car, the bacteria, the disease, whatever it is. And in fact, you think about this, that there are circumstances that led to the circumstances that caused the death of that bird. And God was in control of all of those. Because every circumstance touches something else, which touches something else. And there's a whole chain of causes and effects. 
And God, God, if you trace that back as far as you want to go, God's there. And then you consider that every one of those causes and effects is interrelated with other concurrent causes and effects, other circumstances that are going on around the thing that ended up killing that bird. And God's in control of all of that. And everyone, in the way that they relate to one another, this whole interconnected web of causes and effects that goes from here all the way back into eternity past, all of, or to the beginning of creation, all of the things that, that brings all of this up to this one point where this single bird dies, all of that is in the providence of God. Not outside of His control or His care. Not outside of His knowledge or His will. And now Jesus looks at you and says, okay, that's the one little bird. You are of more value than they. Your Father cares for you. Your Father cares about every detail of your life. This is a great comfort to the people of God, an encouragement to them not to fear not to fear the circumstances, not to wonder where God is, what God's doing. How could God let all of this happen? God is is bringing all of these things about in His own caring providence. So, sister, brother, do not fear. Do not fear. Let me encourages us thirdly this way. He says, do not fear to acknowledge me before men. Do not fear to acknowledge me as your Lord because earthly acknowledgement brings a heavenly acknowledgement. Verse 32, so everyone, he says, who acknowledges me before men, I will also, also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Have you ever publicly acknowledged Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior? Have you come to that point where you have gone public? That initial public confession, acknowledgement is found in Christian baptism. And I wonder if maybe there's somebody here. Maybe you've grown up here. Maybe you've begun to come here in recent years. Or maybe you've been here many years. But, and you've come to the point where you believe. You've, you believe the gospel. You understand your sinfulness. In your heart you have cried out, Oh Lord, save me. I'm a sinner undone. And if you don't save me, there's no hope for me. Oh God, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in my place, that He was buried, that He rose again. He is my hope for my righteousness. Please, in Jesus' name, save me. You've confessed the Lord in your heart, but you have never yet gone public. Maybe you have never yet been baptized. Jesus says, listen to to me this morning, Jesus says to us, don't keep silent about me. Be public. Acknowledge me before men. And in many places and at many times, to acknowledge Christ publicly like that is to invite persecution. Wednesday night in prayer meeting, I told the story of Sasha, a young teenage Ukrainian girl who became a believer but suffered many beatings from her father for acknowledging her faith in Christ. And still, she longed to be baptized. And finally, through the unusual providence of God, the Father relented, and she was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just a few weeks ago. Our faith will be tested through adversity. Perhaps you've already experienced... um, some measure of ridicule for your faith or ostracism in some way? I know that some of you have. Last week I wondered aloud how long it may be 
before our faith is more openly or actively persecuted and opposed. In fact, do you understand that every one of those 12 apostles faced pressure to publicly deny Jesus Christ? These men, whom, th- these very words that Jesus spoke to those guys, they went out and faced exactly what He said. And one, at least for a moment, did deny His Lord. Peter swore with an oath that he did not know Jesus. And then he went out and he wept bitterly, and the Lord restored him. Amen? Which is so encouraging. Praise the Lord that He is merciful, so that what He's speaking of here is not a momentary fear of man that causes me to keep quiet when I should have spoken, or a momentary fear of man that that caused me to make a wrong choice instead of standing up for what was right, but rather where that becomes the pattern of my life and the settled orientation of my heart. The Lord is merciful. And we can come to Him today and say, get on our knees today in the end of the service and say, Lord, forgive me for the times when I have let the fear of man rule my life. And here is one of these 12 men who's an example that the Lord is gracious and the Lord does restore if we are repentant while there is still yet time. That same man stood up in front of his fellow Jews and said, this same Jesus you by wicked hands have crucified. This same man stood up and proclaimed publicly, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and paid for it with his life. Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. You just think about that for a moment. Now, here's the encouragement. Here's the blessing. You acknowledge Christ publicly. He will acknowledge you. You just let your mind go to that day that is going to come upon this world, the day of final judgment when Jesus comes back. In that day when our Savior comes again, nobody is going to doubt the claims that He made. Nobody's going to doubt that He's the Lord and Master. He's going to be ruling from His almighty throne. God will be sitting there on His throne of fire and a holy judgment, and you and I will come and stand before Him. And on that day, may He say, that one is mine. He confessed me before men, and now I confess Him before you, my Father. And God says, well done. Come in, my son. Come in, my child, to your eternal reward. Jesus says, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father in heaven. What do we have to lose? If God is for us, finish it for me. Who can be against us? Don't deny him out of the fear of man. But not only does the fear of man have the potential to separate us from Christ, not only the fear of man has the potential to separate us from Christ, but so does an inordinate love of man. Love of man. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth, Well, in one sense he did, of course, right? The angels in heaven said, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But that peace, and and here's what a lot of people miss about the gospel. Their opinion is that the gospel brings peace indiscriminately. That means peace to every single living person on the face of the earth. Everybody, because of God's great love, is just going to somehow be swept up in this kind of sentimental forgiveness that God gives them. And even though they may live all their life in opposition to the Savior, in unbelief with regard to Him, live all of their life loving their sin instead of loving the Savior, He's just going to somehow forgive them. No, the Bible says that God, through Christ, brings a sword. That is, He divides humanity believers 
from non-believers. He divides humanity, those who are in Christ, from those who are outside of Christ. He says to his own disciples, I'm sending you out and I want you to understand this, that the message that you preach is going to be like a sword that's going to literally cut families in half. He says, verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Last week I mentioned the believer that has come to Christ in North Africa who is now divided from his Muslim family. Or Sasha who was divided from her own father. Uh, There's a dividing line that runs right down the middle of a household. Jesus says in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the paradoxical nature of the Christian life. The way to live is to die. It's to lay your life down. It's to go through death to yourself so that you might live unto Christ. And friends, I know that some of you will be tested by people that you love. Your faith and your love for the Savior will be tested against the love that you have for your family. Some of you, this will happen for you. Some of you will be tested. Your love for the Savior will be put to the test because it's going to come in juxtaposition to your love for your close friends who have influenced your life so much. But there's going to be a line that's going to run right down the middle. And you're going to have to decide whose side you're really on, what you really love more than anything else. And I I don't make it out that this is always going to be an easy thing. It's going to be a test of faith for some. Some of you will face perhaps well meant but essentially still selfish pressure from loved ones not to seek first the kingdom of God. They'll say to you, why are you wasting your life and your money? Why are you raising your kids like that? How can you live like that? How can you stay with that person? How can you go to church every weekend? I don't know what it is they're going to say, but you're going to feel pressure from your own loved ones. Maybe there's someone here, maybe a young person, and the pressure upon you is going to come from your friends, from people who have been close to you, who've lifted you up, who were there for you when you were lonely, uh, who you've done wonderful things with and had fun memories with and the pressure is going to come from them and you're going to have to decide who you love more your friends or your savior there may be some young person who's going to need to actually distance himself from a friendship that is leading you away from Christ instead of to Jesus Christ You're going to have to come to a point where you decide what is really, who do I really love in my life? I mean, when it comes down to it, who is really most significant? Because these two people are going in different directions. Christ over here and this loved one over here. Jesus himself had to deal with this to a degree, even in his own lifetime. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we read that Jesus' own brothers sought to get control of him because they thought he was out of his mind. He's deluded. He thought, our poor brother, he thinks he's the Messiah. In chapter 12 of Matthew, we read that they came to Jesus and said, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus looked around and he said, these are my brothers, the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. Someone here today is probably going to face the well-meaning advice of family and they'll be very concerned about you. And they'll say, you know, we just, we're really concerned about the way you're living. We just want you to be happy. 
Your own ideas about following God are so harsh, so narrow. This family member will come and they'll, they'll try to insinuate themselves into your life, in, in, not out of malice, but what they think is, is, is love for you. And I just want you to recognize, friends, listen to this, that sometimes behind some well-meaning counsel of human, uh, of human beings, there is the voice of the deceiver actually speaking through them. Again, I don't mean that the people themselves mean ill for us, but there is a serpent's hiss in what they say. Peter, this is what happened with Peter, right? Jesus' own disciple came to him after Jesus talked about his crucifixion and said, far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He, 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 didn't, he didn't believe that Peter was Satan, but he heard in the words of Peter in that moment the well-meaning counsel of a friend, the words of the deceiver. It happened with Jesus' own brothers who said to him, Jesus, if you want to be popular, if you really are who you say you are, then go up to Jerusalem and do dramatic works up in the capital because that's, that's the way you're going to get known. That's the way you're going to get, um, get a following. And they had no idea that Jesus' purpose was to come and to lay down his life according to the timetable of his father. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, in essence, don't let the fear of man move you away from Christ, away from me, and don't let the inordinate love of man move you away from me. And there's one final part to his admonition to the disciples as they're going out to live in a hostile world, and it is this. He says to them, consider not merely what you're giving up, but what you gain by following me. And here, as always, Jesus is not merely saying, you must be willing to lose everything. Be willing to lose it all for me. Notice carefully, again, verse 39. Look at the middle of verse 39. Notice what Jesus tells them to think. He says, understand this, that whoever loses his life for my sake will what? He'll find it. He says, I'm not telling you simply to go out and lose your life. I'm telling you how to find life. I want you to know life, he says. The way to know life is to risk everything for me, to put it all on the line, to go out openly and proclaim my name and live for my glory. That is life. They're called to evaluate things in reality, as they really are, according to the eyes of faith. Paul did this when he said, whatever gain I used to hold on to, whatever good things I used to think my life was about, I count them now as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. It is like the missionary... Martyr, Jim Elliott said, one is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. Jesus says, I want you to see, living like this, without, without fear of man, living a life of risky faith, living a life of obedience without regard to the worldly cost is actually the smart thing. It's really the wise thing. Because that's the way you find life. That's the way you find a life with me, my life working out in you. Because that was Jesus' life. This is the way you find eternal life. This is the way you enter into your reward. Verse 40 to 42. Now take a note at that as we come to the end of this passage. He says, um, verse 40, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, the one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's what? Reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And the whoever gives even a cup, uh, to one of these even uh, a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus says, listen, if you live 
the way I'm telling you, there is great reward. There is reward for you, and there is reward for those who acknowledge and receive your testimony. Jesus sent his apostles, his prophets, or as he calls them here, my little ones. (laughs) He said, he sent them out to preach and preaching to suffer, suffer in his name. But they don't regret it now because they have now entered their reward. Those 12 men, those 11 men, (laughs) are in the presence of God. Those men received their reward. But notice what Jesus says here. Whoever receives their testimony. Okay, take a look again at at these verses. I want you to see this, not miss it. Verses 40, 42, 41, 42. He's not only telling them that if they lay down their life, they'll find life, but also whoever receives them, right? You see that? Whoever receives them will will be rewarded. In fact, whoever receives them will receive what kind of reward? The same kind of reward. If, if, you, if they receive these prophets, then those who receive them will receive a prophet's reward. You receive these righteous men, you'll receive a righteous man's reward. You give even a cup of cold water to these little ones and you will not lose your reward. Jesus says that whoever receives the testimony of the apostles will receive the same reward as the apostles. Now, friends, your part and my part in bearing reproach for the name of Christ may be small, like giving a cup of cold water. In Jesus' day, He did not call every single one of His disciples to literally become martyrs for His name. Not all of them, that would be their fate. In the providence of God, some of them, these men became martyrs, but he says, even those who who give you a blessing are going to receive the same kind of reward. Friends, in other words, we we don't choose our portion in Christ's sufferings, whether it's going to be large or small. If it was up to us, everyone would say, I'll take a small helping, please. Right? (laughs) We don't get to choose. Some of us will be doled out in the providence of God a healthy portion of Christ's sufferings. Some of us will be doled out a different kind of portion, a different kind of bearing of of a cross, a different kind of dying to self. But we must choose faithfulness in whatever part we're given, and Jesus says the reward will be the same. The reward will be the same. In Hebrews, the writer of The book there says that some of the people that he wrote to were, quote, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Others, he said, were, quote, partners with those so treated and visited them in prison. In other words, there were some that Christ called to go to prison for his name's sake. And there were others he called to go visit in prison and bring the cup of cold water and bring the meal and visit the family and take care of the wife and the children. And they received a reward as well. Because it is not up to us what path we get to walk. Christ decides, God in his providence decides what path we get to walk. Our part is to be faithful in that, to do what God wants us to do without regard for the fear of man because we believe in the care of God for, our, for us, and that faithfulness will receive a like reward. Maybe your part, maybe your part is not in the providence of God, going to be to lay down your life on a foreign mission field, but rather to lay aside your fancy vacation so that someone else can go to the mission field. Or maybe your part is not to die at the end of an Alka spear in the jungles of South Africa, South America, but rather to open your mouth to speak the same message in the face of your own fear of man. Maybe your part is not to suffer in prison for preaching Jesus, 
but to get on your knees every morning and pray for those who are. Maybe your part is not even to endure suffering at the hands of family members. Maybe you're particularly blessed with a believing family. But your part is to reach out and make that person a part of your family. And what Jesus says is that you will receive your reward. Your job is not to decide what your providence is going to be. Your job is to take the providence of God and be faithful in the midst of it. To to not deny the Lord. To trust in the goodness of God. The danger is to say to ourselves, well, because I can't do the greatest thing, I can't do anything. We are not all given the same portion in Christ's sufferings, but we are all called to the same faithfulness. And if we are faithful, we will all share in the same reward in the presence of God for all eternity. So Jesus spoke these words long ago, but He's speaking them now as I've tried to expose them to you. He's speaking to them, speaking them to you and to me today. He's getting ready to send us out into the world and He wants us to consider what really is driving our life. Whether our lives are being driven by the fear of man or by the inordinate love of men or whether our lives are being driven for a desire for the greatest of all rewards, and that is the well done of our Father and the entrance into His glorious presence for all of eternity and all of the ages to come. Let's pray and consider just those things. Father, search our hearts and show us where our thinking needs to be challenged and adjusted. Show us areas where we have lived by the fear of man, please. Show us areas where we have not spoken up, not lived as we should openly and publicly for your name. Lord, please strengthen those who are being tempted by family and friends to go away from you. Please, Lord, help them to see what's going on in their lives, even from well-meaning loved ones. And Lord, strengthen us all to be faithful in what you've given us to do. Please help us in this, Lord. Help us to apply these things. Help us to remember these things and to know how... Our lives are supposed to be shaped by them, we ask you in Jesus' name.